0: phone lines used to report results were flooded Monday night to a bunch of Trump supporters apparently calling in jamming things up hmm
1: were they only Trump supporters well I don't know why I came here tonight just asking I got the
2: feeling that something right no it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair and I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in
1: the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California, on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon, on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire, on WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. I should have given a heads up to those in Concord, New Hampshire. We'll be talking about New Hampshire today. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from brandblog.com. And yes, we will be talking about New Hampshire, uh, where they got a primary, I hear, coming up <laughs> in just a couple of days, but that is not specifically why we're talk why why we will be talking about it. Well, just ask yourself, what do Iowa and New Hampshire have to do with each other other than the caucus a few days ago in Iowa and the New Hampshire primary coming
0: up? I'm sure this is a mystery that will be solved soon.
1: It will soon be solved. But before that, some email Desi Doyen Ah. uh, to Bradcast at Bradblog.com from Jim, who says, Dear Brad, as cordial as I find you throughout the history of your program, it is to everyone but Desi Doyen. You're excellent producer. After you introduce yourself, you always ignore her by not saying, here with Desi Doyen, hello there, Desi, my unsurpassed producer who never has made a single mistake. How are you today? (laughs) So well, that's
0: very, very sweet.
1: Uh, but, I am
0: touched at the concern. Well,
1: but it goes on. Oh, Jim yeah. says, uh, don't make excuses for your rudeness. It is obvious that you have personal reasons for your behavior. Oh. We can all feel it out here, but you don't have to share whatever it is with us. You do, however, have to remedy this or I fear my loathing for your unfair behavior will ultimately drive me and many other listeners away. Sincerely, Jim.
0: Wow. Okay. So, wow, that's really kind of Jim to be concerned. And I can say that uh, I really hope that that doesn't change his uh, willingness to listen, because I know that sometimes we have so much to cover, it's really difficult sometimes to take the time to stop and chat with me. And and I'm totally cool oh, with that. Oh, shut up, cause... Desi Doyle. Nobody cares
1: what you have to say. <laughs>
0: Apparently, uh, sorry, sorry, I'm sorry that it came across that way to anyone. Well, I don't know because that's not exactly how the dynamic works. I don't think there's
1: any personal reasons (laughs) for my behavior, other than, yeah, as you say, sometimes we're not even in the same room when the show starts, much less uh, to say hello. Yes, anyway, uh, nonetheless, uh, thanks, Jim. <laughs> Appreciate the uh, email. Always good to hear from listeners out there at Bradcast yes, at Bradblog.com.
0: Thank you for taking the time to communicate and to share your concerns, but we're okay here, really. It's okay, honest. knock cool it off,
1: Desi. It. we got a lot to get to.
0: <laughs> yes, this is true.
1: Uh, one, of the, uh, pro- <laughs> one of the problems, as we've discussed before about global warming, Des, as long as you're here, is that a lot of people actually kind of like it. It can make the winters much uh, milder in many areas. And I remember that my uh, mom and dad, before he passed last year, used to love to brag whenever they got to go out and play golf in Missouri, you know, in November or December because temperatures had skyrocketed, you know, into the 60s or 70s in the middle of winter. So that's one of the problems with global warming, as some people think it's swell, at least for them. And I guess that would mean this is good news for golf lovers in Antarctica today. According to Matthew Capucci of The Washington Post Capital Weather Gang, just days after the Earth saw its warmest January on record, as we noted on our most recent Green News report, uh, by my unsurpassed producer, Desi Doyen. Antarctica uh, has broken into its warmest temperature ever recorded. A reading of 65 degrees was taken Thursday at Esperanza uh, Base along Antarctica's Trinity Peninsula, making it the ordinarily frigid continent's highest measured temperature in history, 65 degrees in Antarctica today.
0: I know T-shirt weather, kind of scary. Uh,
1: do they have any golf courses in Antarctica?
0: Th- I think they have putting putting things, but that's Ma- it, so. Trump
1: National Golf Course <laughs> Antarctica. No, just is for on the scientists way. that that stay yeah.
0: down there for their you know to have some recreation.
1: The balmy reading beats out the previous record of 63 and a half degrees back in 2015. In just the past 50 years, temperatures have surged a staggering five degrees. In response to Earth's swiftly warming uh, climate, around 87 percent of glaciers along the peninsula's west coast have now retreated during that time, the majority doing so at an accelerated pace since 2008. Sixty five. I'm still trying to wrap my brain around that one. Sixty five degrees in Antarctica. Now, it is summer there. Yes. In the Southern Hemisphere.
0: This is true. But yeah, that's weird. And the fact that it broke the previous record by more than a degree is uh, rather stunning.
1: The World Meteorological Organization notes that cracks in the Pine Pine Island Glacier have been growing rapidly in the past several days, according to satellite imagery. Uh, What is what is that concern about, Des?
0: Um, So the glaciers that sit there at the edge of the coast are sort of like bottle stoppers or door stoppers. So once they start breaking off, then they kind of release the plug that holds back the on land glaciers and that increases their flow rate into the ocean. That, of course, then increases the melting and increases sea level rise and the rate of sea level rise increases as well. So if
1: this keeps cracking, things could get worse a lot more
0: quickly. Well, it's going to take possibly hundreds, if not thousands of years for all of that ice to melt. So it is still, however, a very dangerous and very rapid uh, sea level rise compared to what would happen naturally under no man-made climate change. So,
1: Capucci notes that it's been a monumental year for climate extremes and we're only on day 38 of 2020. January was the warmest on record globally. With records shattered in Europe and Asia, a number of locales in Eastern Europe and particularly in Russia wound up more than 12 to 13 degrees above average. This record in Antarctica does not come as any surprise, writes Eric Stieg, a glaciologist studying climate change at the University of Washington. Although there is a decade to decade, although there is decade to decade variability, he says the underlying trend across most of the continent of Antarctica is warming. So we can expect these sorts of records to be set again and again and again. Additional extreme warmth is likely in the Antarctic Peninsula in the coming days. Temperatures some 40 to 50 degrees above normal are predicted by some models. So again, even though it is summer in Antarctica, these are insane temperatures. Yes. But, you know, no problem. We all (laughs) know climate change is just a hoax. So don't take any of this seriously. It's not a climate crisis. It's not an emergency at all. Uh, According to
0: Republicans, and
1: at least if you want to, you know, take a golf junket down to Antarctica, it's it's fantastic.
0: Hey, it's uh, it's warmer in Antarctica than it is in Orlando, Florida.
1: So, you know, we're now officially in the middle of a primary election, and of course it is going to be a lively debate between Democrats for a while, as it should be, but one of these men or women is going to be the ultimate candidate and it's going to be is going to need to defeat Donald Trump for a whole host of reasons that, I have argued, have plunged the nation into a national emergency, but that is important not only because we need to save the nation, but because we need to save the planet. Well, the planet will be fine. Human civilization, on the other hand, maybe not so much. Exactly. There is uh, no one candidate who will be able to do that on their own to save the planet, but they can begin at least trying to do so, and they must, and they will, if it's a Democrat. If it is Donald Trump, his reversal of action to save humanity, that will continue. And uh, if we have not already, we are quickly running out of time for these actions. That is just one reason why this year's elections are so indescribably important. So I just hope everyone can find it within themselves out there amid the spirited competition of an internal party primary to keep their eyes on that larger prize. Uh, Frankly, that largest prize, perhaps, that has ever existed at this point for human civilization. Just wanted to throw a little perspective out there today. So on that note... The Associated Press says that uh, thir- said Thursday it is unable to declare a winner of Iowa's Democratic caucuses. Following the Iowa Democratic Party's release of new results late Thursday night, former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg leads Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders by two state delegate equivalents out of more than 2,000. That is a margin of 0.09 percentage points. Now, Bernie, on the other hand, leads Mayor Pete in the number of votes actually cast. By that score, Sanders defeated Buttigieg by three and a half percent or about six thousand votes in the first round of voting at the caucuses, according to the latest reported results. And by a little more than one and a half percent or almost three thousand votes in the final round of voting. So AP may not be able to declare a winner, but we will. At least according to the known numbers, Bernie Sanders won Iowa. He received thousands of more votes, even if thanks to Iowa's caucus math, Buttigieg barely edged him, uh, edged Sanders in the so-called state delegate equivalent count. In the end, however, both both candidates will likely receive 11 national delegates for the Democratic National Convention. Uh, out of Iowa, and that is a tiny number of the nearly 2,000 delegates that will ultimately be needed to win the nomination. Still, The impressive numbers by Buttigieg, the uh, previously unknown former mayor of South Bend, has certainly helped his fortunes in New Hampshire polling, according to a new poll released just this afternoon from NBC News and Marist, where Sanders, who previously led in the Granite State, according to the same poll, with 22 percent. He now leads with 25 percent. That is an uptick of three points. Since the January survey for Bernie Sanders, Buttigieg coming in second now with 21 points to Bernie's 25, Mayor Pete ticked up uh, four points since the previous polling. In both cases, the changes uh, and the margin separating them are still within the poll's 4.7 percentage point margin of error. They are followed by Elizabeth Warren at 14 points. She's up one point from last month. And Joe Biden at 13 points. He's down two points from January. So Warren is also up while Biden is down. Amy Klobuchar is in fifth place, also down two points since last month currently with 8%. Now, while we're more interested in actual election results and voting than we are polling, it is helpful to understand what may be a benchmark as we head towards the New Hampshire primary on Tuesday, just in case any computer problems or dirty tricks end up shaking things up as they appear to have done in last Monday's Iowa caucus. But at least in Iowa, as will be the case in New Hampshire, we have hand-marked paper ballots publicly counted In the case of Iowa and in the case of 40 percent of uh, New Hampshire towns where they actually count them by hand at the precinct before those ballots move anywhere, that is what I call the gold standard for democracy. So we have those at least to rely on if there's any questions about the ultimate results. But yes, this is your reminder that we are in a political atmosphere where anything can happen, either due to unpredictable uh, moods among the electorate in these unprecedented times, or due to manipulation by political operatives and dirty tricksters, one of whom will be joining us momentarily today. So by way of helping to set the scene for that, In early November of last year, as the move toward impeachment of Donald John Trump was in full swing, the Republican National Committee reportedly funded thousands of automated phone calls to help jam up the offices of dozens of House Democrats during the fight surrounding the impeachment inquiry. Two unnamed sources briefed on the effort told The New York Times at the time, this is back in November of last year, that the coordinated phone blast tactic aimed to shape public opinion of the investigation or at least to give the impression of uh, public opinion when it came to these calls that went into Democratic congressional offices. They also uh, admit that it was simply meant to tie up the phone lines of the elected officials so real people, real voters, could not get through. Approximately 11,000 calls were reportedly made as part of this RNC scheme. Two sources told The Times that RNC officials discussed this phone jamming effort during a so-called off-the-record dinner, That was attended by more than 12 Republican elected politicians, advisors and aides. The sources suggested that the calls were automated and admitted it was done to tie up the Democratic phone lines. RNC officials said the calls were not pre-recorded robocalls, but they said they used a vendor to survey voters. And when they talked to voters who opposed the impeachment inquiry, those voters were then automatically offered to be connected to the offices of their congressional representatives, according to these officials. So, yeah, the RNC, the RNC itself was willing to pay money to phone jam congressional offices. Why wouldn't they do the same thing to embarrass the Democratic Party in, say, uh, the first in the nation Iowa caucuses last Monday? Reports emerged on Thursday revealing a scheme to jam the results reporting hotline in Iowa and suggested that it was carried out by Trump supporting trolls on a far right, far right wing Internet message board. But is it possible that there was more behind that scheme? It certainly wouldn't be the first time that Republicans resorted to such tactics, whether they are legal or not, in hopes of winning an election. As we discussed briefly on our previous broadcast, the GOP did exactly that in an effort to game a 2002 U.S. Senate election in New Hampshire, after which four senior GOP operatives were convicted of or pleaded guilty to federal crimes and were sentenced to prison for their involvement in that scheme. One of them, the man who ran the New Hampshire scheme, the phone jamming scheme for the RNC back in 2002, he's now out of prison and he joins us next on the broadcast just days away from the New Hampshire primary to discuss the 2002 scandal there and the one still unfolding out of Iowa along with what all of us should be aware of as the critical 2020 presidential election cycle kicks into full gear. Alan Raymond, author of How to Rig an Election, Confessions of a Republican Operative, joins us next for an exclusive interview on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Some folks were living in twilight for one, for two, for even three hours. Uh, Some Iowa caucus precinct officials were forced to wait on hold on Monday uh, after the uh, caucus in Iowa as they were trying to reach party headquarters after their new smartphone app had failed. Some of those officials never got through at all for some reason, eventually dropping Uh, Dropping off the results into snail mail after giving up, explaining uh, part of the many reasons why it took so long for the Iowa Democratic Party to release results at all, even partial results, after the -the first-in-the-nation caucuses inauspiciously kicked off the all-important 2020 presidential election season. And threatening I was long-held first-in-the-nation status yet again. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. There is a reason why we have not spent a whole lot of time on this program since 2016, focusing on the concerns about Russian manipulation, specifically in our election system. Not because Russia isn't fully capable of doing so, or not for lack of evidence that they didn't already either do so or tried to do so in the 2016 election. There is plenty of evidence to suggest that they did. Enough that I have long called for an examination of the 2016 voting system, specifically in states like Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania which the Department of Homeland Security has, according to their own testimony in the U.S. Senate, never actually done. But one of the reasons I don't spend a lot of time focusing on uh, on Russia is because the sole focus on Russia as the one bad guy that needs to be guarded against means that we tend to ignore all of the other bad guys that serve as just as immediate threats to our electoral system. That includes not just other adversarial foreign countries. Take your pick from Iran to China to North Korea to so-called friendly foreign nations who might have reason to want to interfere or manipulate our elections one way or another. But it does not take a nation state to rig our elections in any number of ways. Focusing on the threat of hacks by foreign nations ignores the arguably larger domestic threat to our elections, be it from domestic hackers to election insiders, whether they are contractors or elections officials, all of whom have uh, the most direct access, by the way, to our dangerously computerized and non-transparent voting and tabulation systems. When and if they game an election, it's uh, equally as difficult when the insiders do it to either uh, prevent or to even discover after the election, given the dangerous and shameful lack of transparency and public oversight of our elections, thanks in no small part to the nationwide introduction of computerized voting and tabulation systems, But that's just one of the reasons I've been arguing that what happened in Iowa is actually a helpful thing in that it underscores, even with all of its errors in reporting, the need for full public oversight of elections and tabulation and results. Yeah, there were many reported errors with the results initially in Iowa, and perhaps there are still, but they are being corrected And that is thanks to fully publicly overseen tabulation and recording of votes by everyone at each caucus site. That is something that disappears as soon as voting and vote counting is hidden inside a computer. And while the Iowa caucus debacle highlighted just some of the many dangers of using untested, secretly developed, unnecessary computer tech For mission-critical elections, the story of the phone jamming that we recently learned about, reportedly by Trump supporters on caucus night, prevented Iowa Democratic caucus officials at the precincts from even reaching the Iowa Democratic Party by phone to report numbers when the smartphone app had failed. That should serve as further evidence, a further reminder of the continuing and arguably growing threats to our elections, and specifically to the critical 2020 elections, which I have described as America's last firewall against full-on authoritarianism under this particularly odious president and the shamefully cowed modern-day Republican Party. As we discussed briefly on our previous program, as the story was just breaking, it was first reported by Bloomberg News on Thursday, a hotline used by Iowa precinct chairs To report Democratic caucus results to the state party was reportedly flooded with calls on Monday from supporters of President Trump after the number to the hotline was passed around online. Mandy McClure, the communications director for the party, told the Des Moines Register on caucus day, the Iowa Democratic Party experienced an unusually high volume of inbound phone calls to its caucus hotline, including hostile calls from supporters of President Trump. Sources told Bloomberg that a high volume of people called in and expressed their support for the president after the Democratic Party's uh, results hotline became public. NBC reported that the number was posted on the right wing website 4chan, along with repeated encouragement to clog the lines. Uh oh, how unfortunate it would be for a bunch of mis- mischief makers to start clogging the lines. One poster wrote at 4chan as the just as the caucuses had ended and results were being phoned in. Other users chimed in, posting alleged wait times on hold, imploring others to, quote, clog the lines and make the call, lad. Rob Sand, Iowa's state auditor, he was taking calls himself as a volunteer on Monday night. He said he received an influx of calls that appeared to have been generated by a post on the Internet He said a lot of calls came in at a certain point where it was clear somebody had published the hotline number somewhere. Iowa Democratic Party officials said the party staff members and volunteers had flagged and subsequently repeated blocked repeated callers who appeared to be reaching out in an attempt to interfere with their reporting duties. These included callers who would hang up immediately after being connected and callers who expressed support for Trump and displeasure with the Democratic Party. Now, as we also noted on our previous show, this was not the first time something similar has occurred. In a well-funded, concerted effort back in 2002, Republican operatives at a call center jammed Democratic get-out-the-vote phone lines during a tight, closely-watched Senate election between Republican John Sununu and then-Democratic Governor of New Hampshire Gene Shaheen that year. As confirmed uh, during later criminal prosecutions of all of this, 900 calls were made for 45 minutes of disruption to the Democratic-leaning Get Out the Call vote uh, Get Out the Vote call centers. Sununu, the Republican nominee, ended up winning a very narrow victory against Shaheen that year. That could have easily been affected by the effort. Four men were convicted of or pleaded guilty to federal crimes and sentenced to prison for their involvement. And the state GOP ended up paying New Hampshire Democrats one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars in damages. One of those men who pleaded guilty, eventually spending time in federal prison, was a decade long Republican operative who eventually threw over the Republican Party, though perhaps only after they threw him under the bus themselves, as I understand it. He wrote a book about the 2002 New Hampshire phone jamming scandal and many other such dirty tricks and violations of election laws long employed by Republicans and, yes, even some Democrats to rig elections. His name is Alan Raymond, and his 2008 book is called How to Rig an Election, Confessions of a Republican Operative. As the Iowa phone jamming story broke on Thursday, I could think of no more perfect person today to join us to discuss what happened in Iowa on Monday and what all Americans should be aware of as perhaps the most contentious and arguably most important presidential election in American history Gets underway in 2020. Alan Raymond joins us now. Welcome to the broadcast, sir.
3: Uh, Thanks for having me.
1: So I, I spoke to you a bit off-air about all of this, uh, Alan, yesterday, and we were still only learning the details of this apparent phone-jamming scheme in Iowa, But I and I know you've got some interesting observations about what we know so far and don't, but uh, very quickly, uh, before we get there, what exactly was your role for which you pleaded guilty and spent, I think, three months, was it, in federal prison uh, in the New Hampshire phone-jamming scheme of
3: 2002? Uh, yeah, that's correct. I was the... Um coordinating vendor on that effort uh, and pled guilty to uh, charges regarding uh, phone harassment mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, was incarcerated, as you say.
1: Now, how well-funded was that operation, and, and how far in advance of the election was it, uh, was it conceived and, and put together?
3: Well, so uh, several weeks. Uh, you're asking me to go back a long time a long time here but uh it was several weeks in preparation mm-hmm. uh well funded only in so far that it was adequately funded yeah. uh, and the funds were provisioned in advance um but uh i mean it wasn't by any stretch a sophisticated operation but uh, uh but it it took some planning mm-hmm. uh, and um so it wasn't something that was done the day of.
1: Was it something that had been done before, or was it something that uh, you guys basically dreamt up, oh, this will be a good way to to cause uh, havoc in this election, or was this a, a, a tactic that had been uh, used previously by the Republican Party?
3: Uh, uh, well, as a specific tactic, tactic not the one I'm, I was aware of mm-hmm. or had encountered previously in my time working in politics. Mm-hmm. I think... You know, voter disruption, election day disruption by both parties has occurred for you know centuries. Um, but uh, as far as specifically that method and and that tactic, not that I'm aware of. And and
1: what was the uh, the mindset at the time uh, among your GOP colleagues that that actually made something like this even possible? I mean, surely you and others knew that it was unethical at best and uh, illegal, apparently, at worst. I mean, was this a a win at all costs uh, to gain power? Was it justified that, oh, we're, you know, saving babies from abortions? What is the thinking that goes on uh, among these people?
3: Well, I mean, I can't speak for the other two. What I I can tell you from my experience is that, uh, and this is probably true today, in Mm -hmm. fact, uh, clearly it is, from what we saw in Iowa, is that... um, uh, win at all costs, no, but there is a, um, mindset mm-hmm. that, uh, particularly amongst the professional operatives, and this is why you have election lawyers, mm-hmm. is that you do seek advantages, uh, and you then rely on those lawyers to, you know, allow you to push as close as you can to the bright line of the law, but not step over it, which was the case in my point. I did consult an attorney and told that, you know, it wasn't illegal. So, um, certainly it was questionable. I mean, that's obvious. I mean, it was obvious to me when I was first introduced to it, but for other uh, reasons, mm-hmm. I pursued it. But, um, but I think that, that, that the, the core of your question, and so my answer to the core of your question is that there's a mindset in the political operative class that you do look for ways to push for every advantage, and that can bring you very close to the bright, side, the bright line of the law. Mm-hmm.
1: And so you felt it was not illegal. You had actually talked to someone in advance, and they said that this would not be illegal. An attorney. Yeah,
3: I mean, I no. I went into it not thinking that I was breaking the law. I mean, it wasn't like uh, you know I put on a you know, <laughs> it's not like the bank robber puts on a hoodie and puts the gun in his pocket and knows mm-hmm. he's going to go rob the bank and break the law. But to me, it was it was certainly you know uh, uh, it didn't smell right, right, but not being illegal and given the way that that I knew that. Um, oftentimes things operated, that as long as you stayed uh, within the law, that you were going to be okay.
1: You, uh, you, Of course, you all were eventually caught. Some went to jail. Uh, Republicans, I guess, were embarrassed uh, at the time, but their man, uh, uh, John Sununu, back then, still won the election. I mean, was was the lesson for Republicans down the line, uh, if not people like you who had to, you know, serve time for this, was the lesson for Republicans uh, down the line that, hey, it was all ultimately worth it. We got our guy in there, after all, for six years.
3: Well, that might have been the calculation. I mean, the RNC did wind up spending, I think, close to $6 million defending one of my co-conspirators. Um, I think that, you know, look, I think that what we did on election day in 2002 in New Hampshire had no real impact on the outcome of that election. Ah. Uh, Sununu won by 20,000 votes, but that said, uh, from my perspective, that doesn't excuse it, doesn't, doesn't mitigate it in any way. A great deal of, um, distress was, was, uh, felt by, by then Governor Shaheen, now Senator Shaheen and mm-hmm. her family, and, and that's regrettable. Um, and something for which I've I've had remorse, uh, and I actually apologized to mm-hmm. her uh, in person.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so I mean that you know that's how I felt about it. I knew that at, you know look when I was confronted by the FBI, they came knocking on my door to confront me with this. And after hiring an attorney, and a, a new attorney,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, I uh, you know I came I came to realize, and this is a difficult thing that not everybody does, but I came to realize that what I did in fact uh, violated the law, and I. Immediately, there was no question in my mind that I'd cooperate, and I'd plead guilty, because I'd, unknowingly, I mean, certainly it might sound, it might be hard for your audience to believe, but, you know, I, I unknowingly broke the law, so went confronted with the fact that I had, I didn't fight it, I didn't, uh, I pled guilty,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, you know, I, I accepted those consequences uh, uh, almost, you know, pretty much without hesitation.
1: Yeah, and clearly you did. I, clearly you were embarrassed. You were uh, you took responsibility. You were contrite. You confessed to uh, basically what happened, uh, both to law enforcement and in your book, "How to Rig an Election," which is still available to, for purchase. But is, is today's Republican Party any more or less involved or interested in this kind of hardball and yes, criminal, criminal tactics to win elections?
3: Well, I you know look, I can't speak to the where the, you know, where the Republican Party's at because I'm not a member of that party. I left that party long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I would say that uh, given that we've just gone through an impeachment mm-hmm. that does, did involve a domestic uh, uh, political contest, election contest mm-hmm. uh, that the president anticipated the former vice president Biden. Um, look, that, that's taking it, you know. That's taking it to a whole other level, Um, and so uh, you know I know the president's uh, excited to say that he's been acquitted, and now his record should be expunged from the house. But the (laughs) fact is, uh, the facts are what they are, and so I mean I think that's evidence that you know if you're if you're asking did anybody learn the lessons from New Hampshire 2002, I I would say probably not. Mm. Um, Indicative of uh, you know what we've, we've seen in the last three years. So, uh, so, well, and even longer going back to the 2016 election, where again it was taken to a whole different, uh, whole different atmosphere.
1: Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it seems like, uh, he, he has gotten away with this. To be clear, he was acquitted, but he was clearly guilty uh, for, for what he was charged, at least in my opinion. And I think it sends the message that do anything at any cost to win an election, period. And I'm afraid that's the message that is being sent, not just to the Republican Party, but even to the Democratic Party, uh, who, you know, the, where, where the stakes seem higher than ever.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think I think the, 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 the bigger the bigger issue here, and, and this does involve the New Hampshire incident, is that every incident like that uh, chips away, slowly chips away at the foundation that makes up uh, our republic's institutions. Mm-hmm. So as we slowly chip away, Eventually we shouldn't be surprised to see them crumble uh, once we've demolished the the, the foundation of that mm-hmm. of the republic so I mean I think that's that's part of my regret and uh, my regret over the New Hampshire thing is even a small incident and in, in by st- you know by standards of history and the mm-hmm. length of the age of the Republic uh, even a small incident like that has the effect of slowly chipping away at normative behavior, hmm. and as that Nor and we now we've seen a completely different standard of normative behavior amongst um, our our political operative class and certainly amongst our elected officials and i think that that's the graver that's the graver outcome that's the graver consequence uh, uh, that being that we've you know incidents like that slowly slowly change normative behavior till we find ourselves in a place where maybe we can't even recognize who we are.
1: Yeah, and I'm afraid that is uh, not just true among the political operatives and officials and so forth, but even among the public at large, uh, as I think we saw in Iowa. You and I talked a little bit about this uh, yesterday off air, but we have since learned... There were apparently 85 phone lines to take calls at the Democratic Party headquarters in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, after the Iowa caucuses on Monday for the uh, 1,700 or so Caucus precincts, which were they—they uh, they had mostly uh, hoped anyway that they were going to use that failed smartphone app. But from the details that uh, you know we're still gathering, uh, what do you, uh, Alan Raymond, as a uh, sorry notorious phone jammer, I guess, what do you make of the reports uh, that we we're seeing that Trump supporters were calling and calling to to clog the lines on Monday night after the caucuses? Was was any of that uh, recognizable to you?
3: Well, I, you know, I actually hadn't seen this news about the 85 lines, so uh, I'll address that. And
2: mm-hmm. I'll just
3: address it from a logistical logistical perspective. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of lines. Mm-hmm. You know, those lines, they come in, they come in through a trunk, and that trunk, you get into that system, that system hunts for an open line. So to take 85 lines that hunt, right, so meaning... You call one, it doesn't answer, you go to the next, you go to the next, you go to the next, right? So you got 85 times that you're jumping, potentially, or hopping from one to the next for that call to get through.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, for those to be t- tied up for as long, I mean, I'm not exactly sure what how many hours we're talking about, but I, I mean, I think it was, it was more than one.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, you know, I think it was six or seven hours that these lines were tied up. I mean, I heard at least one report of someone being on hold for two mm-hmm. hours. That takes a fairly sustained... Collaborated, concerted mm-hmm. effort, and so the question that that raises in my mind is: Can that happen organically? Can there be so many people on the Four Chan board mm-hmm. that see that and take that action, and not only just take it once, but sustain it over such a long period of time? That's a lot. I mm-hmm. mean, one person can't do that on their own. Right. Two can't. I don't know what the threshold is, but you know, fifty to a hundred, yeah. continuously dialing and dialing and dialing. That that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of manpower. Tough to sustain just organically. Mm. You now, maybe there's enough animosity and acrimony out there that there are enough people who would do that, acting as individual actors based on their own you know, whatever emotional state.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but it seems it seems like a lot and that's why I think um, former uh, Dem- New Hampshire Democratic Party chairman, uh, Kathy Sullivan, mm-hmm. I saw today has called for an investigation, and that's why she's right to call for that investigation. I, I, I support her calling for that investigation because it, it indicates a, a, a... And I'm not saying it's a term camp. I'm making no allegations mm-hmm. here. I have no idea who's done what. But what I am saying is that it seems a little suspicious that it's just purely an organic reaction.
1: In other words, this is not something that uh, a couple of guys on 4chan came up with as you see it or as you suspect in any event, that this wasn't organically done, that there might be a larger effort behind it somewhere, uh, or... Is it fair to say also that it could be sort of a mix of both? I mean, really, only you know, it only takes one, you know, party, a Republican Party operative, Trump operative, to sort of say, "Hey, here's the phone line for uh, Chan, that the the hotline number in in Iowa. Uh, maybe people should give him a call." It you know, for that that to then take off and and become what it did.
3: It raises the possibility that you could have a well-positioned, well-funded operative, able to say, once this number is made public, to take advantage of that, mm. to to use that for this purpose. I'm not saying that that's what happened. Because right. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know who would... would uh, I'm not making any allegations. Right. But what I'm saying is the reason for calling for an investigation, for instance, as Kathy Sullivan has done is just that it raises enough suspicion that it's worth taking a look at which you know phone company logs will you know it's it's a subpoena will tell you where these calls originated from and so maybe you'll find out it originated from you know three thousand different locations which then okay if you've got three thousand people making these calls organically Mm -hmm. i guess that's what happened or it could be that it these calls were all being generated from the same location so, I don't know. Uh but what the answer to your, the answer I'm giving you is yeah. it does raise enough of a suspicion that it's a coordinated effort that it, that it's worth examining.
1: And it should be something that's eminently discoverable like you say because we've got phone records we should be able to see where all of these calls were coming from and and trace them back and build it from build the case from there to determine if this was an organic effort or if it was uh More insidiously uh, targeted from somewhere. If this was done to harass Alan Raymond, uh, this is what uh, eventually I think what you pleaded guilty to, uh, correct? Using phone lines across, using phones across state lines uh, to harass—is that essentially what uh, the charge you pled guilty to?
3: Yeah, and this is what this would be because you know the 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 Democratic Party is—you know—that's essentially it's a place of business, and Mm -hmm. their business is, is elections. And these calls were were not meant for any other purpose than to harass and disrupt. So, look, I mean, again, getting back to my earlier point about normative behavior, Mm -hmm. I think the reason why we haven't seen something like this, you you know, for 18 years, is at least it had enough impact, you know, that the punishments that occurred around the New Hampshire event in 2002 had enough impact to see that this didn't happen. There are enough people who remembered it and said, oh, that's, that's bad business, don't do that, mm-hmm. you know, learn. Uh, it's, you know, memories are short. Yeah. And, you know, the, the guy, you know, or woman who's 25 and enterprising
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, was, you know, seven years old at the time. Right. You know, he probably doesn't remember. So, sure. you know, these things have a, you know, history has a way of repeating itself.
1: That's what I'm concerned about, uh, especially as we look forward uh, to the rest of this election. There's been a, a, you know, a lot of talk among Democrats and some election officials, uh, though much less, I, I should note, among Republicans about the need for security in the 2020 elections. I referenced some of that in uh, in in my introduction. Should uh, uh, Americans, uh, Alan Raymond, as you see it, should they have more or less confidence now about the playing field when it comes to uh, either election security or just old-fashioned political dirty tricks in
3: 2020? Well, Brad, I'm not, I'm not in the business of, of scaring people, right? But, but this, is what, this is what I would say to that, is that elections are America's center of gravity, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what's Russia's center of gravity? Energy. Oil. Uh, same for Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, every country has a center of gravity. And, and for us as a republic, um, it's our elections. It's the integrity of our elections. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for that reason alone, uh, that's exactly why people should be concerned. And not even, they should just be concerned on a daily basis. They're not even concerned, they just should be, want to make sure that, that that process is reliable, secure, and fair. Um, and so um, when you have an instance like this, where you have people purposely disrupting,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, that's cause enough for an investigation. Because, you know, it, without belaboring it, a republic center of gravity is its electoral process. Mm-hmm. And if our electoral process is compromised, whether it be from domestic actors or foreign actors, that's reason enough to want to wanna do everything that you can to protect it.
1: When it comes to the integrity of this year's election uh, on a personal level, knowing what you know as a a one time, long time, 10 year Republican operative, uh, is there any one thing that concerns you most about this year's elections? And and, uh, is there anything that you think uh, Democrats or voters should be on the lookout for to help protect our elections through this uh, maybe pretty scary election year?
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say that the, the fact that that this incident, putting the app nonsense and in, in, in failure aside, mm-hmm. uh, this phone disruption effort uh, occurring in the very first contest of the presidential nominating process leading up to November's general election, mm-hmm. should be reason enough. If it's happening on the first one mm. and nothing's done, again... We're sending a signal that mm-hmm. this is the new norm. It's okay that you you will not be punished or prosecuted from this kind of conduct. Mm-hmm. That's why, at minimum, an aggressive investigation should occur to determine what exactly happened. Mm-hmm. For the purposes of protecting against same the same conduct in the future, because by not prosecuting, by not investigating, the signal is being sent: hey. Well, we all agree that that stinks, but that's okay. Go ahead and do it because, you know, we're not law enforcement's not going to come knocking on your door.
1: So a very loud uh, announcement of we are now investigating uh, when it comes to the phone jamming and so forth. We are now looking into that to send the message uh, down the road that there will be someone who would that be, uh, by the way, would that be FBI or would that be local uh, Iowa law enforcement who, who ought to be making that announcement?
3: Well, in my, in the New Hampshire instance, it started with a local, with local law enforcement, Mm -hmm. eventually made its way to the FBI. Uh, In this case, you know, potentially the Iowa Attorney General could, uh, I would think, be able to launch an investigation. Um, You know, here you get into matters of law, and the phones are, uh, you know, that's an interstate issue, so that becomes a federal issue, so that certainly would mean the FBI, and then the question is, I think this FBI's... um, Beyond reproach in terms of its integrity, Uh, I can't say, I wouldn't uh, say so much about leadership at the DOJ, just given things that we've read. But they don't do the investigation anyway, so that doesn't really matter. So I think, yeah, the FBI would be uh, uh, the the perfect law enforcement agency to do such a thing.
1: I think, uh, well, I think you said you're no longer a a member of the Republican Party, is that correct? That's correct. Okay, Are are you a member of any other party, by the way? Uh, yeah, I'm actually now a registered Democrat. Oh, really? Uh, and as a former felon in uh, where you, I think you're in Maryland, you said are are, are you That's allowed right. are you allowed to 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 vote where you live?
3: Uh, yeah, I, my my voting rights were returned to me uh, after I'd uh, you know uh, served my uh, served my sentence and my probation, and after a period of time, I think it was three years, I can't remember now. But mm-hmm. yeah, they were reinstated.
1: Good, uh, and not to give away the ending uh, to your book, Alan Raymond, which uh, I hope everyone should. Re- it's called "How to Rig an Election: Confessions of a Republican Operative." Uh, not to give away the ending, but the closing paragraph ends uh, with a line that reflects on uh, well a conversation that I guess you had with your wife before entering jail. You said after ten full years inside the GOP, ninety days among honest criminals wasn't any great ordeal. <laughs> yes, has the Republican Party become more or less honestly criminal since your time as a as a consultant and an operative with them? In your opinion,
3: well. Uh, uh, i don't know about criminal but but um uh it's not the company that i keep anymore and i'm sure they're happy not to have me as company so, mm. so well yeah uh yeah i just um uh i was i was uh buoyed by uh senator romney's uh uh vote of conviction yeah vote of principle um so i think that um you know power is a funny thing and um uh, the republican party is um you know, there's that old Seneca quote, fate has a way of either leading or dragging you to your, to your, uh, to your fate, however the saying goes. But, um, and I think we're seeing that now in the Republican Party.
1: The epilogue of your book then uh, ends last line. Uh, The tactics will only get tougher, nastier, more brutal because the tricks of the trade are known, embellished upon and passed forward by people like me to more people like me with the competition growing stiffer and the stakes rising higher with every election. And then you ask, now what are you going to do about it? Great question, Alan. And I think it's a great question for uh, everyone because I think you are prophetic. This, the, the tactics have certainly gotten tougher and nastier and more brutal. Uh, I am very concerned about uh, what what lies ahead here, Alan Raymond. I'm uh, I'm I'm glad you're there. I hope you don't mind uh, if we call upon you again the next time. A, dirty trick uh, begins to uh, rear its ugly head, as I suspect will be the case in the uh, coming months.
3: Well, I hope not, but um, I, I, I think I tend to agree with you.
1: Alan Raymond is a former Republican political consultant and author how, of How to Rig an Election, Confessions of a Republican Operative, though as you heard, he is now a registered Democrat. Alan Raymond, really appreciate you joining us today on the broadcast, sir.
3: Oh, You're welcome. Thank you.
1: All right, we'll take a quick break here and we'll be back with our closing few minutes on, uh, well, a comment on just some of the historical events of these past few days. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. and thanks. Yeah.
2: Dirty deeds, deeds,
1: Yeah. Dirty deeds, deeds, deeds indeed. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Uh Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman and his twin brother uh, were fire, fired by Donald Trump on Friday. Vindman, of course, is the Iraq War hero and Ukraine expert who testified against Donald Trump during his impeachment. Uh, he was uh, on the uh, National Security Council at the White House. He has been done away with now by the vindictive Donald Trump as uh, during over the break here. Also, apparently, Donald Trump's own European Union ambassador, Gordon Sondlin, a one million dollar donor to the Trump campaign, has also been fired now by a now acquitted Donald Trump.
0: The retribution begins
1: On Wednesday, following uh, the nearly party-line vote in the U.S. Senate to acquit Donald Trump after Mitt Romney gave his moving speech explaining why, after taking an oath to God to follow impartial justice as required by the Constitution, Romney uh, Romney would vote guilty on the first article of impeachment against Trump for abuse of power. That's the first time in U.S. history that a member of a president's party had the courage to vote against a president of their own party during an impeachment trial stephen colbert that night had some thoughts about romney's important unprecedented and historic act of courage
4: i do want to say that was an inspiring speech because hearing Mitt romney take his oath to god seriously was like finding water in the desert because we know Republicans are lying when they say that Trump didn't do anything wrong or that maybe he did, but he shouldn't be removed. Every person who leaves the White House and writes a book about it, or every journalist who gets to peek behind the curtain, they all tell us the Republicans privately are horrified by Donald Trump and want something, someone, to do something to stop him, but they don't have the balls to say that out loud when it matters. That's why an oath is important. Now, oaths may not mean a lot to some people, but here's what it's about. When you take an oath, you can't think one thing and say another. You are asking God to witness on the pain of your immortal soul that what you whisper in your heart is what comes out of your mouth, though most of these guys are talking out their ass. (laughs) Now, in Robert Bolt's A Man for All Seasons, the main character, Thomas More, is the lone voice opposing Henry VIII, a bloated, golden child, who none dared gainsay, who destroyed anyone who did not follow him blindly and then went ahead and destroyed a lot of people who followed him blindly anyway. And in the play, Moore says this to his daughter Meg. He says, when a man takes an oath, he's holding his own self in his own hands like water. And if he opens his fingers then, he needn't hope to find himself again. Well, with the lone exception of Mitt Romney, I think the Republicans have just opened their fingers. They will be missed. So please join me in thanking Mitt Romney for being honest, for not lying to us or to himself, for serving the Constitution rather than than that monstrous child in the White House. Why can't he be president? Thanks, Obama. (laughs)
1: And thank you, Stephen Colbert. (laughs) Uh, My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, uh, Alan Raymond, former GOP operative, now a registered Democrat. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. It is a great honor. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. While you're there, please consider helping us to celebrate our 16th anniversary at BradBlog. By stopping by bradblog.com slash donate, we can use all the help you can offer to get us through this election season. Um, you can also drop me an email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks and the Twitters. I am simply the Brad Blog. Please find, follow, and share all we do there. And that's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.